Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Rational Standard Podcast. As usual, I'm broadcasting here from uh, Grahamstown in the Eastern Cape. Uh, but today I have a particularly special guest. He is, in my opinion, the best speaker in the National Assembly. Um, he is the Chief Whip of the Democratic Alliance, uh, John Steenhuisen. Uh, Honourable Steenhuisen, welcome to Makanda. Welcome to the Eastern Cape. It's your first time here, isn't that right? First time here and it's great to be with you here on the Rational Standard uh, Podcast. Oh, good uh, to hear forward it. To it. Good to hear it. Good to hear it. Well, thanks for agreeing to this uh, social notice. Uh, so, you know, Parliament's an interesting place, and so I've got a number of questions that I'd, I'd be interested to ask you about. The first is that uh, in more recent news, we had an appropriations bill coming through uh, Parliament, and this got slammed from a number of opposition parties because it seemed to just be pumping more money uh, towards a few failing state and ent- enterprises, in particular ESCOM. Uh, could you give the listeners a load on precisely what's happening there? And I believe the DA may be taking uh, the finance minister to court. Is that right? Or have I got that one mixed up? Well, there's a variety of problems, and let's separate them two out. I mean, the first problem is the bill itself, the appropriations bill. And it's ironic uh, that the ANC always portray themselves as the party of the poor, and so they're constantly fighting for poor South Africans. But the appropriations bill, as passed by Parliament, was actually the, probably the most anti-poor uh, bills that have been passed in a long time. And the reason I say that is because uh, if you look at where the cuts have come from, yeah. they've come from the areas healthcare, where isn't it's it? healthcare, it's uh, policing, it's public transport, uh, it's a variety of uh, social uh, welfare cuts, uh, cuts on social workers. And these are all facilities and government services that are used mainly by poor South Africans. And yet that's where the cuts are going. And the cuts are being made to prop up Eskom. So essentially you are using public money that should be spent on assisting poor South Africans, marginalized South Africans, to essentially make amends for the pillaging that's been done by very wealthy uh, tender entrepreneurs, uh, rent seekers within Eskom. And I think it's, it's an absolute travesty. I don't know how the ANC could ever put their hand on heart and go and tell people that they're pro-poor again after this terrible budget, uh, terrible appropriations bill that is essentially robbed from the poor to pay the rich. It's just completely wrong. Yeah, I mean, I think I generally agree with you. I have various problems with stated enterprises, and I'm interested just to talk to you a little bit after after that. Um, yeah, what is quite interesting is, I don't know if you're aware, but just a couple of days ago at Rhodes University, we had Maluski Gaba come and, and give a speech uh, to some economic students. I went by as well just to, to have a listen in the crowd. Uh, and the topic was mostly about state-owned enterprises. And his sort of opinion was the reason why state-owned enterprises are failing right now is because in the 90s, uh, in the mid to late 90s, we really failed to capitalize them enough. We failed to put enough money in them. And as a result, we are seeing the sort of long-term collapse of these state-owned uh, entities. Um, I have a number of issues with that, I suppose. I want to ask, you know, there's a number of state-owned entities, which I'm not even sure why it still exists. Dinell. We're not at war with anyone. Um, it seems like a bit of a strange thing to keep going. Uh, that was you know, the, the descendant of Arms Corps, which we previously had. Um, so you know, things like SAA, ESCOM, Denel, um, this is a more general question, but do you think that there really is a place for these things in the South African government? In the, in right no, today? I don't. And I certainly don't believe in state-owned entities. Uh, and I don't believe that they are the right model to affect the service delivery and the delivery that they're expected to do. I think that in every one of those instances, if you were to unleash the private sector and private enterprise and individual enterprise into those areas, you would unlock a huge potential for whole new industries and job creation possibilities in South Africa. So let's use Eskom for an example. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe it is completely it employs too many people. It is corrupt. 
Uh, I disagree with Malusi Gagaba's analysis. I think that uh, the cap there was no problem with the capitalization of it. The problem is that you put the wrong people onto the boards, you put the wrong people into senior management, and they acted not in the best interests of the organization or the entity or the people of South Africa. They acted out of personal interest, made themselves exceptionally rich. You look about people like Brian Malefe and that string of other people at Eskom who just pillaged the place and completely stripped it of any uh, of any potential and then displaced the technical staff with cadres of executives uh, because they were politically connected. So the whole model is wrong. I mean, that you know, state-owned entities are the big clanking fist of state that's trying to crowd out the private sector. So if you take Eskom for example, yeah. if you were to break Eskom up. And you would allow a competition uh, to emerge for electricity generation, electricity supply in South Africa. You would almost overnight unleash a whole new industry in South Africa of startups, of entrepreneurs, of private enterprise that would be able to employ thousands upon thousands of people uh, in their own businesses. Uh, you're allowing them to be able to generate and supply electricity to supply to municipalities. And you allow free competition to emerge. I think that you would create a greenfield industry with much more potential for South Africa than trying to keep this big, clunking, inefficient, ineffective, moribund, state-owned entity going. But it's this ideological hang-on to these things. You know, the way the ANC views uh, the role of the state, you'd swear the Berlin Wall was still up, Bre <laughs> yeah. Brezhnev still in the Kremlin, the Cold War still raging. The world's moved on. Uh, there's been so much innovation and uh, advancement technologically. People are so much more empowered than they were then with information, with technology. Uh, and the more barriers that you put up, I think the, the more you hold these things back. And the fact that you know nearly every single one of these state entities is failing, to my mind, shows the folly of state intervention, state-led growth, state domination of markets. You should allow the, pub, the, the public sector, the private sector, uh, into those there to be able to unleash the real potential there. And I look at a place like Telcom, for example. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Telcom, in a pretty much similar situation to Eskom, there was a part privatization of that, and you've bought onto that board private sector experience with private sector values who know they've got to deliver a profit. The thing with South African Airways, for instance, is they don't have to offer a decent service. They don't have to look at attracting business because they know no matter how they do at the end of the year, government's going to bail them out. So there's no incentive for them to, to be profitable, to cut costs, to run an efficient, effective uh, airline. If I may ask, just mm. while we're mentioning mm. South African Airways, because mm. this was another point brought up by Gigaba, is that he said that we should, when looking at uh, entities such as South African Airways, because they're state-owned, we should assess, this is this was his words, not mine, we should assess their success or failure, not necessarily based on how much profit they make. Okay, of course, in the private sector, you need to make a profit. That's basically your your mode of assessing how, how successful you are. But I think the ANC, the guys at the top of the ANC, deep inside them ideologically, they don't believe that these entities are really made to, to there to be uh, to make a profit. Um, again, this is not something I personally agree with, but do you think that there's any meat to the argument that something like, for example, South African Airways uh, contributes a lot to the South African economy by 
flying loss-making routes, for example, uh, and at least providing a, a means by which people can come to South Africa. I don't know within, in, within South Africa, I don't think there's a single argument for that. Well, I don't, think, I don't think the argument makes any sense. And I'll tell you why. Uh, the, the billions of rand that we have to put into Eskom and to SAA every year to bail it out is crowding out the social spend and spend on in other infrastructure and other economic development, other reskilling opportunities that we could be using in other areas of the economy. And that funding is being crowded out by us having to put these inordinate amounts of of money into these failing state-owned entities. So where we could be, for instance, massively overhauling the education system, uh, higher education, basic education, and and um, and the education system for early childhood development, what you end up doing is having that crowded out by having to bail out these huge entities on an annual basis. So I'm interested to ask, you know, I, I'm not somebody who pours through legislation, I'm afraid, uh, but when you look at these appropriations bills, is bailing out state-owned entities taking up like a very significant portion of the money? Well, a huge, it's it? a huge chunk of money. If you look at the billions... How, how much, like percentage-wise? If you, if you take a guess, I don't know. Well, I don't know about percentage-wise, but I mean, what it is is doing also adding, it's, it's adding on to the money that we don't have. So 54% of national expenditure now goes towards servicing debt. Uh, debt servicing 54. costs. 54% of national expenditure goes towards servicing debt. It's massively unsustainable. And government's borrowing to bail these state-owned entities out. It's not like we have the money sitting there. So what it's doing is making our debt servicing costs go up, which is leading to further crowding out into other key sectors of the economy. If you add on top of that the 34% that of national expenditure that we spend on uh, this on the running of the state, you can just see how much little is left over at the end of the day to do the things that government should be doing and creating an enabling environment for business to flourish, for job creation to happen. So with debt, the size of government, uh, with, with all these bailouts, etc., it's a massive, massive opportunity cost that's being lost on an annual basis for real advancement in our economy to prepare us uh, to compete with the rest of the world as we go forward. Now, uh, is one of the reasons perhaps also that our debt is uh, rising is because our tax revenue is also uh, becoming less and less? I've got no idea what the numbers are, but what is the situation on that front? Yeah, well, it's not good. And the finance minister just this week in Parliament sent a very stern warning out that the very modest revenue figures that they announced in February this year are not going to be met this year, which means that uh, expenditure is up, debt is up, but revenue is down. So what we should be doing in South Africa is trying to make more taxpayers. And you do that by ensuring you release the burden on individuals, you release the burden on businesses, and you unleash them on the economy to create jobs uh, and to grow the economy and to get more people into the taxpaying net. At the moment, we're pushing millions of people into the unemployment queues, and we are stifling the economy with over-regulation, with over-taxation, which is a massive disincentive for anybody to actually want to get out there and do what needs to be done. And there's little wonder the economy is not growing. It's little wonder that we're pushing more and more people to the unemployment queues. It's about over-regulation, uh, overweening power of the state in determining people's futures, and it's wrong. Yeah. Well, it uh, doesn't sound good, unfortunately. So, and that perhaps leads me to another topic, which I'm, I'm personally very, very worried about uh, because I've heard a few doctors talking about this, and this is on the topic of healthcare. NHI is now coming up. The NHI has become a, a talking point very recently. Uh, I just, just from social media, I've seen the DA has taken a stance against a NHI, and they've also offered their own uh, healthcare plan. So, mm -hmm. could you explain uh, briefly what are the DA's problems with NHI, and what is the alternative? I believe it's some kind of a 
a UBI type thing, like a yeah. lump sum of money. So um, what our problem with the, with NHI is that they, they call it the National um, health, insurance. health Insurance. We call it the nationalization of the healthcare industry because that's essentially what NHI. it is. <laughs> so what they want to do is uh, go after now private healthcare in South Africa, a very successful a profitable sector in South Africa that provides a very good standard of care, world-class care. We have international patients coming to South Africa to seek medical care. And they want to target that uh, to be able to get the access to the resources and the funding uh, of private medical aids, of the private healthcare industry. And it's a huge problem because what the government's misdiagnosis is that if you get your hands on those leaves of power, you're going to fix the healthcare system in South Africa. It's wrong. And they're starting at it from completely the wrong angle. What you should do is focus uh, your, uh, your focus should be on helping the private sector to partner with state healthcare to improve the level of care in the public healthcare system. So we have hospitals that are, are a complete disaster. People end up worse off and unhealthier when they leave the hospital than when they go in. We've got uh, oncology units without on, without any oncology machines. We've got neonatal units that don't even have incubators for, for newborn babies. And if you can't get that right, why on earth should a government then be trying to meddle with the one sector of the healthcare industry that works? But what you have to do is to provide, make sure you've got healthcare for all South Africans. So we've proposed a universal healthcare access called the Cezani um, Healthcare Plan and, and was relaunched this week by our health uh, shadow minister, Sibiwe Guarube, which looks at creating a system of healthcare where you don't uh, actually have to go after the public, uh, the, the private healthcare sector. You get them to partner uh, in private public partnership hospitals with, uh, with government hospitals and improve the level of service there, bring in the expertise, bring in the, the standards and the levels of care that they're able to do, and then to start being able to attract private medical aid patients back to state hospitals. And there's no reason it can't be done. Places like Addington Hospital in Durban, where I'm from, used to be a world leader in many in many industries. People used to come to Addington Hospital to, to, to study various aspects of, of medicine uh, because it was such a high level. Addington Hospital today, you, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't send my worst enemy there to for treatment. Uh, it's just an inhumane environment and people die. Uh, people get locked in rooms. People fall down lift shafts. You can't say that's a hospital. So to bring the same standard of private health care into the public sector is done through partnerships. It's not done by destroying the one uh, part of a health care system that's working. So what we'd look at using is a model to be able to uh, be able to provide a universal access to, to health care. So every citizen, regardless of what you earn or where you live, should be entitled to a minimum package of health care which you should be able to access at a public health care facility. But you do that in a responsible way without destroying the private healthcare industry in South Africa. So if I get this right, is it almost like a like a voucher? Like you have a, a lump sum of money, but it's it's to be used at a at a healthcare. Yes. Yeah, so every every citizen will be entitled to that minimum package of of healthcare. If you obviously want anything above that, you've you've got to contract it yourself or make some contribution towards it. But what it will ensure that every single South African, no matter where where you are, where you live, will be entitled. It's at got the, the most at basic the level. Basic yeah. level of healthcare. Which is far better than anyone's getting at the moment, and uh, you know, suffice to say, you go to some of these local clinics. People have got to take a day off work just to go and wait for medicine there. Yeah. But if you bring private sector efficiency there, there's no reason why medicine can't be delivered. Why uh, you can't have an efficient, uh, effective way of people accessing their medicine instead of having to wait in, in this inhumane way in the sun for a day or two to be able to just access their blood pressure tablets or 
or the like. It's just, it's, it's wrong. Yeah, it sounds like an interesting plan. I mean, it would be interesting to see how it weighs mm. up and uh, what the public commentary will be on it. Mm. Um, uh, moving on to a different topic now. Obviously, uh, your job is to be in Parliament, and we mostly see it uh, through little video clips that get uploaded and things like that, unfortunately. I don't think many people have got the patience to watch through a whole plenary session. Um, you know, this is, just, this is just a question for me personally. I have to say, I've been quite discouraged at how disruptive Parliament is getting these days. It really looks like a bit of an embarrassment. Um, and, you know, it, it seems to me this is all coming from the EFF. It all kind of started when the EFF just entered Parliament. Um, what I would like to ask is, uh, you've been in Parliament a while now. Is this new phenomena of just like dysfunctional, just people shouting and screaming at each other, there's no regard for the rules, is this a, an EFF phenomenon or have we always kind of been like this? No, it's, it wasn't like this before and uh, the EFF have definitely added a dimension to Parliament which I think has both helped and hindered Parliament, so let's be you honest. It's helped? Well, I think that what, what has happened, the fifth Parliament has reinvigorated Parliament as a crucible of the national debate again. If one looks at the second, third and fourth parliaments, they were sedate, no one really watched Parliament, no one really cared what was happening to Parliament, uh, the executive had run total roughshod over Parliament. I think the ejection of the fifth Parliament of new leadership across all parties, younger generation of people coming in, I mean, Mr. Maimani is in his late 30s, Mr. Malema is in his 30s, I mean, I'm a veteran in my early 40s. Uh, it's, <laughs> exactly, uh, yeah. you know, it's, it's a younger generation that come in and have said that you know, we're going to wake things up here a little bit and return Parliament to its rightful place as a crucible of the national debate. But therein lies the rub. There's a difference between debate and disruption. And I think if one looks at the tactics that have been used by the EFF particularly, uh, they are, uh, are, are tactics, the same tactics used by Hitler's uh, national socialists in their rise to power in Germany. They would disrupt they wear uniforms, they've got ranks, they've got complete disregard. They don't want these legislators to work. They want to, when people say things they don't like, they try and drown them out. It's exactly what uh, the National Socialists did in the run-up to their totalitarian takeover of Germany. And I think it was Hayek that said that um, uh, fascism is the result uh, of people realizing that communism doesn't work. And, uh, and <laughs> That's a great It's quote. exactly what you're seeing with the, with the EFF. I mean, they know... In their hearts of hearts that they're not communists, otherwise they wouldn't be quaffing Moe and Shandon and, <laughs> and living it up in Camps Bay. Uh, and you know, they're, they're a fascist organization, and I think they've, to my mind, posed one of the biggest risks to our future viability as a democracy. But it also uh, shows in their complete hypocrisy on so many things, and their complete flip-flopping. Uh, they flip-flopped on everything, from Jacob Zuma, who yeah. you know, Judas Menemo said he would kill, kill for him, kill for Zuma, and then he wants to send a bill to Zuma. Uh, you know, then Zuma's not allowed to speak, and then now they've forgiven Zuma, and now you know, Ramaphosa's person. Then Praveen Godan was the hero and the only person who should be able to address the sona. Now he's that. persona non grata. The public protector was a wonderful woman, then she was the Gupta's kitchen maid, and now again she's, uh, she's the flavor of the month. And it's just this flip-flopping and inconsistency that exposes them for an organization that's just interested in rent-seeking and getting their hands on the leaves of power to make themselves rich. And it's borne out by the experience of the VBS Bank, with yeah, this yeah. Camps Bay debacle, uh, with on-point engineering, uh, the public protectors report into Mr. Malema's involvement through the Ratsanang Family Trust, uh, through their going after Mr. Gordon because he had dared to go after one of their big funders, uh, Colinix Cigarettes, uh, owned by Mr. Mazzotti. And so it's all done out of rent-seeking interest rather than a genuine interest in the poor. 
Uh, and I think that they're, they're a dangerous organization and they pose a huge risk to our democracy going forward. Yeah. But I would, I would just say this about Parliament. Yeah. I'd favor a robust Parliament over a, over a docile Parliament any day of the week. But there is a distinction between robust debate and disruption. And I think what the EF did, particularly with Praveen Godan uh, in the last fortnight, where they're trying to prevent him from speaking in the House, is a complete antithesis of what a Parliament should be. It should be a place where you win the argument with debate and ideas, not through uh, drowning out in fists and violence. That's not what a Parliament is all about. Yeah, you know, I think there's a real danger in any country around the world which has, which is supposed to have a separation of powers between the executive and the legislative. It's very easy for people in the executive to sort of, uh, you know, get frustrated with things not being done and, and usurp powers from the legislature. And I think this is something which has been slowly happening in the United States. But the reason you can see it happening in the United States is because there are actually people in the legislature of the U.S. who are complaining about this. Whereas, you know, just when we, I think when you watch these videos of the, this was the first state of the nation address in how long that uh, had not been a complete nightmare. I think Zuma's last three was it three or was it two? I can't remember. Three, which were yeah. just were just complete. You know, it's like the, it's the kind of thing which uh, should not be at the highest legislative body in the country. And, uh, you know, I just mm. a bit discouraging to watch. But interesting to, to hear the thoughts that the Parliament is, you're right, it's definitely in the conversation now. People are always aware of it. I just want to quickly ask one thing. You mentioned the whole scandal about the EFF at Camps Bay. Mm. There was a bit of a debate once this happened about whether or not journalists should be going through other people's trash. Now, you're somebody who's in the public sphere. I mean, I kind of, I'm a bit sympathetic to that view that maybe, yeah, look, I'm not saying the EFF are good guys, but maybe journalists went a little bit too far then in, in intruding on people's privacy. Do you, what, what do you think I about think that? I think that when you accept that you take up public office, I think you do accept that there are some aspects of your life that, uh, that are going to be more open to public scrutiny than ordinary citizens. Uh, and I think particularly when you are advancing a certain position, and then there's evidence to the contrary that you actually don't live up to what you're saying. I think it's, it, it exposes hypocrisy. And I think there's a duty on, on the media to expose the hypocrisy of politicians and say basically, do as we say, don't do as we do. Or, you know, we're pro-poor and uh, we're against conspicuous consumption and we want to ban uh, you know, alcohol and the like because it's destructive. And yet yeah. you know, you're, you're doing all these things. I think, that, I think that in this case there was an, ex an example to be made of the hypocrisy uh, around that, uh, you know, in terms of invasion of privacy, it's not like they put a camera up inside the venue. Or, you know, they took rubbish bags that had been thrown out and put now on a discarded and put on a, in a public environment. And uh, I think that uh, it, I think it's it's open season, particularly when the hypocrisy is there. Uh, and I think it, it happens the world over. I think the fourth estate have put a duty to uh, hold politicians accountable as well. Um, and as I said, I, you, when you accept that you are occupying public office and you're accepting a salary from the public purse, I think there is a, there is a winding down a bit of some of the rules of privacy that would allow or apply to ordinary citizens by virtue of the office that you hold. Yeah, that, that I think I, agree, I can agree. When you have state funds as your, as your salary, I mean, that's a very touchy topic. And I think the way those funds are spended, uh, you know, it's, it's, you actually get into a moral issue here now because they're not taken uh, from people voluntarily. Just a personal question I'm interested to ask. Uh, is it frustrating to be the chief whip and obey all the rules when everybody else isn't? No, um, and I think it's an important example, and it's why we are so... Um, absolutely intent on using the rules because what I like to show is that you can win your argument and you can win the day 
if you know the rules and you use them and apply them. You don't yeah. need to do what the EFF do. If you use the rules of parliament, the tools available to you and the levers in the parliamentary context, you can use them to great effect. So you can make your point about President Jacob Zuma. You can make your point about Sir Ramaphosa uh, without having to destroy the House. I think a democracy, a multi-party democracy, requires a parliament to be able to uh, survive and function long term. And so I'm really intent on ensuring that parliament is held up as a multi-party environment where that debate can happen and where you can show people that if parliament works, South Africa works. Where if you have a working parliament, you have an executive that's more accountable, you'll have a better government. Better government means better results for everybody. And parliament to me lies at the heart of that. So you know, you'll never see me breaking things down or, um, or you know, destroying or trying to collapse the house um, just for sheer political purposes. Um, you know, we use the rules and parliamentary procedures, breaking of quorums, um, etc., to to our advantage, uh, and that's all done within the rules. Uh, it's like anything—a soccer game, a rugby game, life. There are rules, and you've got to you know abide by those it rules. It makes the game. The it rules, the, all make, the things make that the makes the game. And a parliament without rules is is a free for all. Then we might as well all just take our shirts off and stand in the village square and whoever can Shots. slug each other out the, the hardest or drown the other person out wins. I don't think that's what I don't think that's what our democracy needs. I don't think that's what a multi partyism is about. It's about an exchange of ideas and a clash of those ideas that hopefully leads to us making the right decisions going forward. Yeah, well, you know, I heard an interesting quote relating similar to that is uh, the reason why humanity was able to progress is that before we had to use our fists, but now we don't have to use our fists, we can first use words. Mm. And sometimes that eventually results in us going to war and having to use our fists. Mm. But well, there's a great quote by Robert Kennedy always used to use of Aeschylus, and he said that one of the duties of politics is to tame the savageness of man. Oh, really? And, uh, <laughs> so it, um, it is, um, I think that it's about... Politics is one of the ways to tame you know, the savageness of man and bring that moderation through debate and an exchange of ideas rather than brute force. So on that topic, I'm interested to ask, uh, you know, as chief whip of a big political party, how satisfied have you been with the presiding officers, the speakers of parliament? Well, the new ones so far so good. I think that Tani Medici has certainly already shown she's a better understanding of the important role that parliament plays uh, in terms of, of the House. And I think her rulings yesterday... Uh, and, and the last few day, last few sittings have been right, but I mean it is early days. I think that um, the, the first misstep she made was one around the subjudice rule. She allowed the deputy president, in a question-answer exchange, to rely on the subjudice rule not to talk about the rogue unit in the case with Praveen Godan. The subjudice rule doesn't apply in South African law anymore. Uh, the Constitutional Court in the Midi Television case has ruled on that. Uh, you know, you, Parliament should be free to discuss these matters. We don't have a jury system where the jury can be oh, yeah. uh, influenced <laughs> by a debate in Parliament. And it's unlikely that the justices of the court are sitting watching Parliament to get direction about how they should rule in a case. So <laughs> that would be um, anyway, we, she's agreed to send that ruling to the Rules Committee. But I think she's got a far better understanding about how important Parliament is and its place in the in the constitutional fabric. Certainly a lot better than Belair Kambetu, who was a slavish defender of the executive and the president and you know, shut down the debate. And the real tragedy about that is that if you look back over the course of the last five to six years, the great travesties of our time, whether it was the SABC, the Sasser debacle, Nkandla, all this, could have been headed off at the pass if MPs had been allowed to do their jobs properly and hold the ministers and the government accountable. Oh, the, the, one of the, the, in Kandla, one of the big issues was not answering the president mm. not answering questions. Isn't mm. that right? Absolutely. So right from the beginning, when he was asked about the bond and asked about... 
the, there was protection from the presiding officers. We could have headed all of that off at the pass. And I think that's why Justice uh, Deputy Chief Justice Zondo has been absolutely spot on. And he said it twice now in the last three weeks that part of the reason state capture was allowed to take root was because Parliament wasn't doing its job properly in terms of oversight of the executive and holding the organs of state accountable. And I think it's a fair criticism of Parliament. And we've got to heed what he has said and make sure it doesn't happen again. Which is why I'm very worried about the way Parliament's proceeding on this public protector issue. The longer they kick the can down the road, the longer they refuse to grapple with the fact that we have an incumbent there who's unsuitable to that position, is incompetent and has now been found guilty of misconduct and lying in court. Uh, the longer Parliament takes to deal with that, the more long-term damage it's going to do to the office of the public protector. And that is an yeah. important constitutional... So we were going to find one thing on Nkandla, one thing on state capture, and we can't be found one thing on dealing decisively with the, with the public protector. Yeah, and I think it is quite a tragedy, unfortunately. The public protector's office was seems to be the one area of... Uh, public protector's... It's not a cabinet-level uh, office, but it is part of the executive, isn't that right? No, it's not. It's a Chapter 9 institution. So oh, okay. the Constitution in Chapter 9 created a number of constitutional bodies to assist Parliament to entrench democracy and uphold the Constitution. So you've got the Auditor General, you've got the Human Rights Commission, you've got the Gender Commission, you've got uh, the Broadcasting Commission, and they're there meant to be supplementary to the work that Parliament's doing to, to entrench and foster constitutional democracy. So they are a distinct, separate entity from the Executive, uh, but, and they're, but they are accountable through Chapter 9 of the Constitution to Parliament. And that's why the Parliament's got a duty to hold that public protector accountable. Well, we wish you all the best in, in seeing how that goes. Uh, you know, just the last couple of points uh, on the future of the DA. I'm sure you've been asked this question many times, but, uh, you know, just a few thoughts. In the last election, the DA obviously lost a few votes. I think you lost five seats in the National mm. Assembly. Uh, what is your assessment of, of why that happened? Well, it's disappointing. You know, I, I, you know, it's disappointing, but, uh, you know, we've got to pick ourselves up and move on from there. But I think that it's an opportune time for the party to introspect and I mean I've been very frank yeah. about where I think we went wrong and to my mind we were just not clear about who we are and what we are about and I described the DA in this last election as this big wobbly jelly at the centre of politics and you know people look at it and it, you know, it wobbles a bit on this way, it wobbles a bit that way but no one's really sure what the consistency is and, and what it's all about and um, you know, they, they, they look at the end and, and they're not sure, is this a party for me? Is this a party that's standing up for me? And, uh, and not, you know, as I said to, the, to our party, you know, nobody really minds jelly, but nobody orders it for dessert when you go out for, for dinner yeah, at a restaurant. You get the chocolate and pudding. Yeah. if you look at the two parties that did very well in this last election, both of them were abundantly clear about who they were and what they were about. So yeah. it didn't matter if you were in Polokwane or Amschlanga Rocks. If you saw an EFF poster... You saw very clearly it was a party of the left, Socialist Party of the left, and they were for land and jobs. Likewise, on the other right end of the spectrum, you saw the Freedom Front, and it didn't matter whether you were in uh, Petersburg or in, uh, in Cape Town, there was a party that was fighting back for minority rights, and it was very, very clear what they were and what they were about. The DA's got to become far more clear about what it is and what it is all about. And I think that far too much time the DA's been... Uh, saying that we're avoiding division but putting off key decisions. Yeah. And I think that, that we've got to go into this next election as a strong, unambiguous, unequivocal party standing up for uh, liberal values in South Africa, standing up for non-racialism. And non-racialism doesn't mean being blind to the 
the genuine structural inequality then that still exists in South Africa. Uh, but being a party that stands up for non-racism and fighting for downtrodden and poor South Africans, equal vigor no matter their color, race or language, and making sure that, yes, you know, we, we are standing up for minorities, but we also stand up for all South Africans. And that, furthermore, minority rights are better protected in a broad, strong party at the center rather than these little lagers, because you know, if you have this fragmentation of politics, it's very easy for a dominant ruling party to just push them out of the way. So we need to become the party. We've got to win the trust back of people who didn't think we were for them this election. We've got to win the trust of people who've never voted for us before. And we've got to win the trust of the hundreds of thousands of young South Africans who have just given up hope in the political system at all as being able to address their concerns. And I think we can do those things and, and, and very un unambiguously put up a standard about what we are and what we're about. I think we'll be able to win those people back, win the trust of others, and excite people again about politics as a vehicle for change. Yeah, you know, it's very, very interesting for me to hear you say these things because we actually had an episode of the podcast, I think we recorded it in January this year. It was a bunch of writers for the Rational Standard all talking about it. And this was basically our, our one dissatisfaction with the DAs. We weren't really sure what it was. And I, this is something I've, I've heard echoed. And now there's a, a long period of time for the DA to, to think about this. And, um, but I, I fully agree with you. I think the problem was that if you said you voted DA, it almost sounded, sounded a bit like you were voting for Team Blue, but that didn't really mean very much beyond the, the color blue. It, it was just like a, a thing. It was like the, the, the kind of the team you're on. When you thought about ideas, EFF, I can straight away name you know, their policies. I had no idea that exactly. you, you viewed state-owned entities in this way, <laughs> which is great for me to hear because it's uh, similar. But you see as well, I mean, and it's not only the South African experience. If you look at it internationally, the parties that do well are the parties that are clear about what they're fighting for, who they're fighting for, what they're about. So you look at this last European election, the yeah. parties that did the best are the ones that were unambiguous about Brexit. The, yeah, the Brexit, Brexit party, party in the UK. Yeah. And the, the Liberal Democrats. Oh, that's true, whereas, yeah. <laughs> whereas the Conservative Party and Labour Party fudging their positions on Brexit, they were unambiguous about it. They were very clear. The, the Lib Dem said, bollocks to Brexit. Brexit Party said, we are going to deliver Brexit. And they were the beneficiaries uh, of the, by far the biggest chunks. Uh, Boris Johnson, like him yeah. or loathe him, just this last week. He's willing to clear, leave without a deal now. Very clear about what he stands for. And you left in no ambiguity about what he wants. He said very clearly, he's going to deliver Brexit unite his party and defeat Jeremy Corbyn. And he just repeated those three things through his entire campaign. I mean, he beat uh, his nearest rival by a massive landslide. Yeah. People lack determination, they lack certainty, they lack to know what you stand for. And I think that's something the DA is going to spend a lot of time and focus on in this review of the party that's taking place. If we were to send out that very clear message, what we are, what we're about, so that people can flock to our banner because they say, I, I'm with them because that's what I believe as well. And if we can do that, I think we'll be able to prevail again. Well, our time is just about up, but John Stian Hazen, thank you very much for visiting our little town here in the Eastern Cape, and I appreciate you speaking with me. Uh, as usual, uh, you can follow The Rational Standard on Facebook. Give us a like on Twitter, at Rational Stand. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, at Nick Babaya, and would you like to promote your social media profiles? <laughs> well, I'm on, I'm on Twitter as well. Um, uh, I think my last Twitter handle was South Africa's most famous matriculant, but uh, <laughs> please feel free to follow me on Twitter and Facebook and keep the conversation going. And may I just say it's great to be on things like the Rational Standard. I think this, this is the new way of engagement in politics. I think the more we can have these types of engagements that are more authentic and genuine, 
than these scripted uh, you know, television and, yeah. and radio things. This is the future, and, and we've got to keep these conversations going. Yeah, and it's this format. You know, We can actually talk about the meat of the, of the topic. Anyway, thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you, Nick, and thanks to your listeners. Yes, thanks for listening to another episode of the Rational Standard Podcast. Until next time.